Christmas time is a time of wonder, amazement, and awe. It's about the impossible becoming possible. It's about something magical becoming real. Christmas time is about this cosmic event where time and space are bent and God himself comes into it, opens up time and space and enters in. And the question that you have to wrestle with is this claim that God has come into the world and there's nothing you can do to change it, alter it, or bend it. It has happened. The thing that you have to decide is do you believe it's true? And if it is true, how should you respond to it? What will you do with the claim that not only the warrior king of heaven, who is also a shepherd, has come into the earth and is being rocked in the arms of a humanity that has been at war with his father since the beginning of time? What will you do with this claim that this is God and he's come down into the earth to nurse at his mother's nurse in his mother's arms. He has dirty diapers that has to be changed. When he's hungry, he has to cry so that the humanity that he created could then care for him. What will you do with that claim? What will we do with the claim that this girl who's probably 13 years old is caring for this? son who is divine and she has to take care of him until he is ready to take up his mantle and lead the earthly city out of the earthly city into the celestial city of God how will you respond to the claim that the skies literally danced when he was born and nations came to bow to him how will you respond with the reality that there was a king in place his name was Herod and he was so concerned about this baby boy that is born that he has all of the children, all the baby boys his age in the surrounding area executed because Herod did not want his throne to be taken. What, is, what has to be true is that you cannot respond indifferently to this child being born. We're kind of taking a break from our series called Playlist the Road Home, and I say kind of because we're taking another road. And it's, we got on this road on accident. We wandered away from God. But as we wandered away from God, what he's done is he's come and met us out on this rebel road that we are on, and he has carved out a new path so that we might be led home anyways. And what we've been doing in the series that we are in is we've been exploring what life is like in this world as a Christian and what it's like to pass through this world into the next. The struggles, the pain, the difficulties, the joy, the peace, all of it tangled together. And what we've seen is God's people at least once a year, but sometimes three times a year, usually three times a year, would take a spiritual pilgrimage. And they go all the way up to the city of God, Jerusalem, the city of peace, and then up the mountain of God, the Mount of Joy, and there they would worship God. And what we're seeing is that you, me, all of us, we're taking a spiritual pilgrimage in this life. And we got one big pilgrimage to take, but we've also got many. In each spiritual pilgrimage we take, we go up to the top of the mountain and we meet God and we come back changed. And in the Christmas series... What we're doing is we're looking at the history of God's people and how they got off on the wrong roads. 
How they rebelled from God, how they ran from Him, how they wanted nothing to do with Him. But yet He still continues to pursue them, carve out new roads in order to bring them back to Him. And that's what we're going to discover in this series called Christmas Playlist, The Road Home. Our verses are coming from Matthew 2, 1 through 12. It's the story of the Magi who are backed by popular demand. And we're really going to dig in this year. We're going to spend the whole series looking at who these people are, where they came from in this long 600-year journey, this 600-year pilgrimage that led them to the road to Bethlehem, where there they have dropped to their knees and they are worshiping the King of Kings. And they're the first people to figure out who he is, where he is, and how they should respond. Someone's calling. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed by their own country by another way. All right, who are these wise men? Well, the title that we receive here really literally loses the magic. Their official title is magi, where we get our word magician or mage or magic. But they were not the kind of magician that you think. They were a magician when it was really cool to be a magician. They weren't pulling rabbits out of hats. They had no card tricks, and they weren't on a road show. They were ancient Persian priests whose main job it was for them to appoint kings and teach kings how they should rule. They were there to teach kings all things wise. And a king could not become a king without their checkmark, without their approval. And these magi would teach the king the ways of the magi. So what did they teach him? They taught them everything. All things wise. The magi's job was to teach philosophy. They were ancient doctors. They were mathematicians. They studied dreams. They studied the stars. And our Bible translation calls them wise men to, be, to help us better understand what it was they were to do. But before they were here, in this moment right here, they had a religion. And their main religion was called Zoroastrianism. And it's an ancient religion that was trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that there is both good and evil. 
And over time, this religion morphed into having this idea of a Savior who would come and save the world. Now, how did it morph? How did it be one thing and then turn into something else? Well, around 650, 600 B.C. or so, that's about the time the religion got popular. And along with that, they adopted this idea of a Savior. How did that happen? Well, they got a new leader. Now, if you were a Magi, you had to be born into that role. You had, you, it had to be in your blood. You had to be from that tribe. But the leader that they get is not. And this leader is the one who taught them about a Savior who would come and save the world. His name is Daniel from the Bible. Let me read to you what it says. Daniel 5.11 There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Now, the question is, how did Daniel find himself the second in all of this kingdom, the second in control in all this land, and the number one in control of these magi? Well, the answer is a long and winding road where what happened is long ago, God's people were rebelling against God. They took wrong roads. They took rebel roads. They wanted nothing to do with God. They were running from him, and God kept warning them, and they wouldn't listen until finally God said, okay, fine, I'm going to raise up a king from another land, and that king's going to come in, and he's going to take you guys out, and he's going to disperse you from your land, and so that happens. And some of the young men one of whom was Daniel and some of his friends, were exiled to Babylon. And there, through a series of events, because they would refuse to worship any other god but the god, they got themselves into a bit of trouble. But God used that trouble for them to be in the right places so that at some point Daniel would be the one who is second in command over all of Babylon and the number one command of control of these religious people called the Magi. And there... He would teach them about the Messiah of the Old Testament, and they would adopt this view. So these magi that show up in our, in our story are now underneath a Persian king, because control has been shifting all over the place. And you have to get it out of your head that these are three kings or three wise men. We have no idea how many there are. The idea behind there being three is because there's three gifts offered, but that is not what we know. It's actually likely that there was about a 1,000 people showing up at this because this is a really big deal. Their job is to appoint kings, and they think that the king, the Messiah king, has come into the earth to do away with all evil and to take the world to the celestial city of God. And so the head magi would have been there along with all the rest of the magi. And these are very powerful people, and they're coming from Persia into the area where the Romans are in control, and those two nations were at war, and so they would have been coming with soldiers, they would have been coming not on camels, but war horses, they would have had cooks with them, slaves with them, it would have been a 40-day journey, it's about 800 miles, so there would have been a huge number of people coming with them, and you know what they did? They walked right up into the throne room of Herod, and they said, we're looking for the true king of Jerusalem. Herod was a temporary. He was a phony. Rome had put him in control over Jerusalem, but he was not the true king. 
And so these men, whose job it was to find and appoint kings, marched right up into the king's throne room and said, you've just been keeping the seat warm. We're here for the true king. So step aside. This is why Herod and all Jerusalem are troubled about this news. It's a story that should create awe, wonder, and amazement. And what they do is they walk right up to this child and they start worshiping him. It seems like they are ready not to advise this king, but to bow down to him, follow him to the ends of the earth and beyond. Now the question is, why is it that the very first people to come and worship God were not God's people, but foreigners? Where in the world are God's people? They make the same mistake that you and I make all the time. They've gone out onto rebel roads. They are physically in Jerusalem. See, God exiled them, but then God brought them back. But they're back in Jerusalem. God's people are back, but they're still rebelling from God. That's why they've got this evil king named Herod on the throne. Because they have pushed God out as the king of their heart, the king of their city. And whenever you push out the true king, there's always evil and false kings that make their way to the top of the throne. God's people have forgotten the one who fed them when they were out in the wilderness with the good bread of heaven. And you know this place where Jesus is born, Bethlehem, it literally means the house of bread. It's like God is saying, hey, you have forgotten me. I was the one who fed you in the wilderness, and I'm still feeding you now with the eternal bread that has come down from heaven. Where are you? Why aren't you here? Why is it that foreigners have come to worship at my son's feet? Where are you? And it's as if even if foreigners didn't come, the rocks would cry out his greatness. So when God's people left God, they were exiled, at least in their hearts. Maybe he's led them on a difficult road, and they're feeling lost to him. Either way, the same thing has happened to all of us. You and I have gotten on wrong roads, and we kept following the wrong path, because sin within us runs deep. And we're out on those rebel roads, running from our God. Rebellion against the God who made us. We're prone to wander. I feel it in me. I go to pray to God and there's a part of me that doesn't really want to be praying. Because maybe I've been through a trial, maybe I've been through a difficulty, maybe I've been through some suffering. And I want to soothe myself my own way instead of going to God. And God's saying, come to me. Give up all the other things you're going to to soothe you. And I'm like, God, I don't really want to do that. I'd rather just go ahead and go to those things besides you. because you, Well, it's more difficult to go to you, God, because you, you require too much of me. You're going to ask me to do things that I don't want to do, and you're going to tell me to stop doing things that I want to keep doing. And so even in my prayers, I'm avoiding God. And then I open up the Bible and see what it says. And I know what he wants me to do. And so I go to God in prayer and I'm like, I don't really want to pray full heartedly right now because I know if I do, God's going to ask me to go all in. And so I hold myself back. Just enough to make it questionable who is on the throne of my heart. And then that leaves room for anything else to climb up there and start destroying my life. 
But you know what God does? He meets us out on those wrong roads. He meets us there in the wilderness. He meets us there in our broken relationships. He meets us there where we're sinning. He meets us in all the places that we are that we should not be. And he goes and he meets us and then he starts carving out a new road for us to follow. And it's the same way. He use, look at what he does. He uses his people's sin to drive him out of their land, and then he puts them in a foreign land, and then they begin to gather new people so that when he returns, those new people also come. It's like by the sin of his people, he's putting his people in a position where they could bring the whole world to come and meet the God of the cosmos. Now, that is not an invitation to sin. It's an invitation to meet the character of God who always offers the sweet nectar of grace in a wilderness that is dry and barren. And discover him and then follow him wherever he calls you to go. He takes those bad roads that you are on and he makes them into beautiful roads again. It doesn't mean those roads are easy. You will reap what you sow. But in the end... The ending of the story is always amazing and beautiful. And that's the stuff that makes you realize if you are a Christian, it is a miracle. You have not found your way to him. He has found his way to you and carved out a road that you would never have gone on without him. It's the kind of magic that's deep in your soul that changes you and makes you come out different. And on those rebel roads, he carves out a new road and he brings you to a place, a crossroads, where you have to decide what you're going to make of him. In our story, we see three different responses to Jesus, this child. We see Herod who wants to kill him. We see the Magi who bow down and worship him. And then we see God's people who are indifferent to him. The Magi follow this unlikely road where they meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They have a weird spiritual past. They've gotten into some strange things and it was a strange road to the road of Bethlehem. And you know what they did? They, well, you know what they did not? They did not get their theology right before they went to to this place called Bethlehem to meet this king of kings. They did not get their lives all cleaned up before they met him. They went and met him out on the road where they were dirty and nasty and they met their king who was bloodied for them. And I'm telling you right now, if you're waiting to get your life all cleaned up before you meet him, you will never meet him because you will never be cleaned up enough. And some of you have been Christians and now your, your life has got a bit dirty. And so you're trying to clean yourself up before you go and meet him again. And you're going to be spending the rest of your life getting cleaned up. And at the end of it, you're going to find you're dirtier than you were before because you need him. And as you meet him, you're going to find that he's putting you and giving you the strength to be on roads that you would have never taken. Because without him, you won't get on the roads. You don't have the strength to get on those roads. You need him. Grace sets you on better roads. Now Herod, his response is to seek to kill this little infant. So he literally has tons of these baby boys that are born around the same time as Jesus in the surrounding area executed. So that they don't take his so he doesn't take his throne. 
Now, if you have to kill little infants to keep your throne, it's a pretty weak and worthless throne. Or you're a pretty weak and worthless king. But you know, the reality is that compared to Jesus, we are all weak and worthless kings. And that's what happens when you meet him. If you know, you go have coffee with Jesus, you go have a dinner with Jesus, you know what you're going to feel like? You're going to feel worthless. You're going to look at his perfection and you're going to say, who am I to be sitting here with this king? All of your sins are going to become glaring. But then he looks over at you and he says, no, this is a seat at the table. You sit down with me. And he accepts you and he loves you and he gives you grace. And when that happens, you are filled with so much worth and value and dignity that you become changed by it. See, here's what happens when you meet him. You meet a king who's so magnificent, so perfect, and so wonderful that you have no choice but to either take your crown that you've been wearing and put it down and worship him, or you go running the other way. He's too great to be in the presence of for you to try to keep a throne and a crown. And the threat of his perfection will make you run from him. And some of us are running from him and we have no idea that we're doing it. Because we want to stay in control. We want to have the power. We want to have the authority. We don't want him telling us how to live. And so we're pretending to sit at his feet, but really in our hearts we are running very far from him. That's what Jerusalem is doing. They are in ruins because they don't want him as king. And so a false king replaces him. This means you simply cannot have a mild reaction to him. At least if you really look at him. Now the, ir the irony of the story is this is exactly what happens to God's people. Now look at the Magi. They are foreigners. They come into the land. They go up to Herod. And Herod doesn't know the prophecies about this coming Christ. So Herod summons all the religious leaders and says, hey, where is he supposed to be born? And they're like, oh, it's Bethlehem. And then the Magi and these thousand group of people go taking off to Bethlehem. And do you know who sits behind not moving, God's very people. They are indifferent to him because they're still running from him. They're in the right place. They're sitting in the pews, you could say. But they want nothing to do with him. They're remaining indifferent because they don't want to lose all the power. Whatever is holding you back from him, and it's happening, whether you've been a Christian for a minute, whether you've been a Christian for 10 years, there's still something, there's always something that we're holding back where we don't want to go all in with him. Do it. Because whatever is holding you back from him, you're really holding something back from yourself. Because you're so worried that if you give him the crown of your life, that he's going to hold out on you. But by not giving him the crown of your life, you're holding out on yourself. Now eventually... God's people do decide what they're going to make of him. And they seek to do to him the same thing that Herod sought to do, to kill him. And they succeed, or so it seems. So what did the religious leaders, why did, why did the religious leaders and political leaders of the day kill Jesus? 
because he brought them to the crossroads and forced them to make a decision about what they would make of him. His claims were too great to ignore. He's, he's standing there before the religious leaders, before the political leaders, and he's saying to the political leaders, I am king. And he's saying to the religious leaders, I am the long-awaited Messiah. He claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed that all the prophecies in the Old Testament are pointing right at him and nowhere else. He is making the claim that the entire Old Testament, the point of it, was to lead God's people right to him. He claimed to be able to forgive sins, which is only something God is able to do. And he claimed to be the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And when people worshipped him, he let them do it. Reasons for execution. What is clear is that he is either the King of kings or he is a megalomaniac at cosmic proportions. But he cannot simply be just a good teacher. Because if he's a good teacher and he's not God after he has claimed to be God, well, then he's telling a lie. And the point of teaching is to tell the truth. So he brings you to the crossroads for you to make a decision about him. And there at the crossroads you meet him and he is carrying his cross. See, can you imagine like if Mary, as she's nursing Jesus... In her arms, if she knew the Old Testament well, she would know, and if she knew who was in her arms, she would know that this little infant would one day carry a bloodied cross and would be executed on it for the sins of the world. And he does do that very thing. Because there, in Jerusalem, the city of God, he's exiled out of it. And he's crucified outside of the city gates. And there, as he's taken up by death, he breathes in the stank air of death and then spits it back out. And he rises up from the grave. And he takes us with him. And there, if you have the eyes to see that he has done this for you, all of a sudden what happens is the gates of paradise are revealed. And they are opened up but you see that you have to go through him because he is the gate and he is the way and the truth and the life and no one goes to the Father and the celestial paradise without going through him. He is the ancient magician who doesn't trick you but tricks sin and death so that the gates of paradise might be opened up to you. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, you have led us to the crossroads, and we have to make a decision. We either have to come to you for the first time, or we have to keep running. We either have to come to you for the 15th time, or keep you at a distance. God, I pray that you would help us go all in. that the chambers of our hearts that would rather keep ourselves king on the throne, that we would remove the tyrannical king of ourselves on the throne of our own hearts and put you where you belong, as our king, our captain, our guide, 
the one who puts us on better roads. So take us, pluck us out, carve out the road that we should be on, and lead us home to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.